Dear Lord, bless us as we um, once again study your word this Friday afternoon, our final study. May it be uh, transforming for us. May the Holy Spirit be here. We really need you. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. Amen. We've been studying a, just for an introductory thought every morning, where the word of a king is, there is power, Ecclesiastes 8. Where the word of a king is, there's power. And we looked yesterday at the fact that there's voice-activated systems. And notice how specific God's voice activation system is. When he said, Lazarus, come forth, you know there were other dead people. This was Lazarus was buried where there were dead people. But who came forth? Just Lazarus. Um, and there are several, several uh, resurrections that he is involved with at different times. Very specific. For example, Jesus will call forth in a special resurrection all those who died in the faith of the third angel's message. And so he has some voice trigger, and what if there's some mistake and some others come up? No, it's very precise. Sometimes when I ask Sari to do something for me, she gets it wrong. But God's voice activation system never gets it wrong. Jesus is going to uh, call forth the most bitter opposers to his truth just before he comes because God wants them to see the exaltation of the Son that they despised. And so he has a command, voice command. And what happens? Just the opposers come forth. He'll call forth the righteous dead at the beginning of the millennium. And he calls forth the wicked dead at the close of the millennium. All this is voice activation. John 5, 28 and 29, the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Not at the same time. Those who have done good to the resurrection of, the, of life. And a thousand years later, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, at creation, all of creation was voice activated. And the default for humanity, Adam and Eve's created default, was automatically to respond to the voice of God. But God gave them the possibility to override his voice commands. And with sin, the default is now to ignore, neglect, or reject God's voice-activated commands. Responding to the voice of God is the difference between those who are saved and those who are lost. Jesus told the disbelieving Jews, uh, rulers of Israel that were sitting in the judgment on him, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. He said in another place there in John, my sheep do what? Hear my voice. Hear, respond, and obey my voice. That word hear doesn't simply mean hear. Now, my wife has uh, thought maybe I was having some uh, ear difficulties. And so she sent me to, Dr. Regal, she sent me to an audiologist. And so we went through all the testing. 
And the audiologist turned to my wife and said, I'm sorry, ma'am. Uh, there's no problem. We, we, this is a problem that we cannot fix with a hearing aid. There is no hearing aid for the heart of listening. <laughs> Just a story. Didn't actually happen. But the problem is we have, we have here, we have the heart of listening to the voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus. If they were Jesus' sheep, they would recognize, respond to his voice. Review of Herald. I just read this this morning. We were reading in our worship time together this morning worship, uh, my wife and I. And uh, this is what it said. Review and Herald, 1127-1900. It was actually in light and... Uh, Last day events, but I always like to go to the original. But we're going through life uh, last day events. An ordinary mind trained to obey a thus saith the Lord is better qualified for God's work than are those who have capabilities but do not employ them rightly. So what we need is not just training, but hearing the voice of God. Education, as valuable as it is, can only give external qualifications. What God is interested in is what he alone can do, and that's change our hearts inside and outside. And we've been looking at the outskirts of Jerusalem where God took ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and we see that an ordinary mind trained to obey a thus saith the Lord is better qualified for God's work than are those who have capabilities but do not employ them rightly. Dear folk, if you are learning to recognize and follow God's voice, day by day you are being trained for usefulness for the Lord. And if day by day your ears are hardening, you're getting harder and harder of listening, then uh, you will not be able to be useful in God's in God's work. And that's what we want. You remember what uh, Ellen White says in volume five of the testimonies, I believe it's around 581, many are going directly contrary to the light which God has so graciously sent to his people because they do not read the books. So if we don't avail ourselves of the word of God that he's given, it's as if he didn't give it. And one of the things that I love is that everything is on audio now. So you can, uh, I don't have time to read very much anymore. But I can listen. And as I go to sleep, as I'm exercising, as I'm doing things, as I'm driving in my car, I'm going through the spirit of prophecy, uh, book after book after book. And I discover I need more than uh, one time to listen to them. I need many times. Um, but we've been looking at the stories from Bethany, the suburb of Jerusalem. Before we leave, we must turn the spotlight on another individual who made important decisions at Bethany. Um, does everybody have Wednesday's handout? Because you'll be able to... Okay. If somebody could 
pass any out that need it. Uh, this is from Wednesday. If you have it, fine. If you don't, I have plenty. Uh, because you'll be, we'll be comparing some things. Um, we turn the spotlight who, on this person who made these important decisions in Bethany, but refused to respond to the voice of God. We'll begin with the Gospel of John and review the familiar story. We'll begin in the last column, or if you have your Bible, you can turn to John 12, either way. We'll quickly get oriented in those first few verses of John 12. We've seen them before. The time is six days before Christ's last Passover, a week before the, actually, six days before the crucifixion. This was on a Sabbath, and it was, he was crucified on Friday, so that'd be six days. Place is Bethany. The event is the feast at Simon's house. Martha is serving. Mary anointed Jesus' feet with a very costly perfume. We've looked at all this. Now I will begin reading with the very last part of verse 3. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. I always knew that Jesus loved beautiful colors. He's an artist, filled the earth with them. Flowers, sunrise and sunset. Birds with color. He liked color so much that he wanted to share it with us and gave us eyes to see color so we could enjoy it. I knew that Jesus loves beautiful music. Heaven's filled with music. Heaven has a traveling choir that has, that has sung on earth at Jesus' birth, at least once has sung, the uh, traveling choir. We'll hear it again when Jesus comes. Jesus loves beautiful music so much that he wanted to share it with us, and it gave us ears to appreciate it. I know Jesus loves wonderful taste. He placed delightful flavors in the fruits, grains, and nuts. He loves taste so much that he wanted to share it with us and gave us taste buds to appreciate it. But it came as a surprise to me that Jesus loves to smell. I never really thought about it. We don't have time to look at it, but there's a small theme through the Bible on smelling. He places wonderful perfumes in the sanctuary. The pillar of cloud had a wonderful aroma to it. Heaven will not only be a place of grand sights, rich music, and delightful foods, it will be a place for indescribably pleasant smells. You don't want to miss heaven just for the smell of it. <laughs> Mary was making the home of Simon a little heaven on earth, a model of heaven on earth, fellowship with friends, good food, filled with a pleasant odor, and Jesus was the center of attention. Surrounded by those he had delivered, Simon he had delivered from leprosy, Lazarus he had delivered from the grave, Mary, he had delivered from the cruel bondage of immorality. That is heaven. But there are people who would be miserable 
in heaven. Let me share a quotation with you. Review in Herald 914, 1897. Envy and jealousy originated with Satan in paradise. Those who listen to his voice, now we've been looking at different voices, but those who listen to his voice, not Jesus' voice, those who listen to his voice will demerit others and will misrepresent and falsify in order to build up themselves. If you want to know who's listening to Satan, who's following from Satan, here we just heard it. Um, Review and Herald, September 14, 1897. Unless those who cherish the Spirit are changed, they can never enter heaven, for they would criticize the angels. They would envy another's crown. <laughs> They would think their crown isn't as good as that person's. They would not know what to talk of unless they could bring up the imperfections and errors of of others. Oh, that such would become changed by beholding Christ. End of quote. With this background, let's look at John 12.4. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Verses 4 through 6 of John 12 give us seven facts about Judas, at least. One, Judas was a disciple. So we are talking about a person who was living with Jesus had spent the last years living, working, seeing, listening to Jesus. This is a warning to all disciples of Jesus. His surname was Iscariot. He was Simon's son. Four, he was a betrayer. Immediately following the story here in Bethany, he leaves to take the two-mile trek into Jerusalem and there betray Jesus. He criticized Mary's gift with a pious reason. Six, he was a treasure. He was the first treasure of the early church. And lastly, he was a thief, stealing from the poor and from the donations given to Jesus. I guess we could add an eight. He fundraised for himself, but called it fundraising for poor. His tribe hasn't ceased. These facts raise three interesting questions. Number one, how could a disciple of Jesus become a thief? Number two, how could a disciple of Jesus become the betrayer of Jesus? And number three, why didn't the disciples recognize what was happening in Judas' life? How come they couldn't see it? Judas obviously had great influence over the disciples. When you compare Matthew's account in Matthew 26, 7, and 9 with John's account, this really emerges. You should have it there in your... Yes, uh, you have it there so you can just see it. Matthew is the first column, John is the last, but you can see them side by side. And I want you to notice this, um, Matthew 26, 7 through 9. A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? 
For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Now, who said it in John 12? Judas. Who said it in Matthew? The disciples. So Matthew, John tells us what Judas initiated, but Matthew tells us the response of the disciples to Judas' statement. They resonated with it. These disciples were to be followers of Christ. That's what a disciple is, one who follows. But in place of following Jesus, who were they following? The lead of Judas. They were more like Judas than Jesus after spending time with Jesus. Lord, Am I a disciple of the Judases in the church? Am I responsive to criticism? Am I sympathetic and supportive of pious criticism? God, please deliver me from this. The influence of Judas permeated the room just like the fragrance of Mary permeated the room. Two people in Bethany opened up their hearts. One revealed the sweet fragrance of Jesus' love. The other revealed the foul odor of selfishness. Two hearts there in Bethany. The disciples couldn't tell the difference between love and waste. Who was this disciple? It is important for us to know about Judas because Judas was able to disguise evil under a covering of righteousness. We need to recognize that and detect it because God wants us protected from those kind of influences. What if Judas had choked on something during that supper and died? Assuming Jesus didn't resurrect him, the disciples would have been totally shocked when they got to heaven and Judas wasn't there. God let Judas live for a number of very important reasons. There are at least three we'll note. Number one, God wants us to recognize Judas-like characteristics which each of us have. I listened years ago to a sermon by Cliff Goldstein. I'll never forget the title. It was called The Judas in All of Us. Two, to avoid being influenced by Judases within the church, God left this uh, on record. And three, he left it on record for us to see how Jesus related to Judases. This way we can follow his loving example when we meet modern Judases. Now what does the name of Judas mean? The Old Testament name sounds like Judah. And in fact, if you guessed it would be the same, you'd be right, because Judah in Hebrew, Judas in Greek, means praise. Jesus had two disciples named Judas. 
If you look at the 12 disciples, half of them shared names of other disciples. There were two Simons, there were two James, and there were two Judases. So it isn't as hard to learn the name of the names of the disciples as you thought. To distinguish names today, we use surnames. And so it's not just Phil, it's Phil Mills. Um, but surnames didn't become standard until the last 800, 900 years. In the days of Jesus, they had other ways of distinguishing. So Ju Jesus had a nickname for Simon. He was Peter, Simon Peter, because there were two Simons. Peter's father was John. He was this, uh, Peter was the son of Jonas, or John. Um, so today we might call him Simon Johnson. The Judases we are looking at this morning, the Judas we are looking uh, at this morning, this afternoon, was identified as Judas, son of Simon. The other Judas was the son of James. Judas, the son of Simon, was also called Judas Iscariot. Iscariot can mean assassin and may have been an added identity um, after Judas's betrayal. Uh, uh, Judas, the son of Simon, or Judas Iscariot? Yes. Simon Iscariot. Well, they didn't have last names there, so it was uh, Judas, son of Simon, or Judas Iscariot. Yeah. It may also refer, it may have been added after uh, his betrayal of Jesus, or it may refer to a city in Judah called Kerioth. Um, we have no idea today where this village is located. But Judas's father's name was Simon. Simon was a common name. There were two disciples called Simon. The event took place in a Simon's house. Simon the healed leper, Simon the Pharisee. Was Simon the Pharisee the father of Judas? Some have speculated that it was. The family may have lived in isolation in Kerioth because of Simon's leprosy. But that's just idle speculation. And leaving idle speculation, we turn to what's known about Judas. Judas was unique in Christ's disciples for several ways. He was the only one from Judea instead of Galilee. Jesus also did not call Judas. Judas requested to be a disciple. And when the multitudes were following Jesus, and it appeared to be a path of future greatness, if you have your Bibles, you can look at Luke 9.57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. We find out in Desire of Ages that that someone was Judas. I want to follow you wherever you go. That sounds very good, doesn't it? But it wasn't. Judas was a shrewd, ambitious, calculating young man. He had been looking for the right opportunity for success in life. He wanted to be there to invest in the next Walmart, the next Apple, the next uh, Microsoft in the ground floor while it was still cheap. He wanted to find the next uh, big company when there was only three other people that owned stock in it. He was looking for that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And when he met Jesus, he thought he'd found the opportunity to strike it big. 
Jesus was going to be the path to Judas' future success. Judas appears to have been educated, appears to have had uh, great talent, appears to have had a very impressive resume. He printed it out on his color laser printer, and he handed it to Jesus. He may have left a good job to follow Jesus. He may have appeared to be willing to make any sacrifice for Jesus. But he wasn't really sacrificing for Jesus. He was investing in his own future. Perhaps the other 11 disciples knew that Jesus was looking for one more disciple to round out the group. They were very excited about this young man. They'd had so many who had rejected Jesus, and there was somebody here with talent and education who had accepted Jesus. To their surprise, Jesus met Judas quite coolly. He said in Luke 9, 58, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Christ was asking Judas, in effect, why are you following me? Count the cost. If you think you're going to get ahead, if you think you're going to be rich, if you think you're going to be famous, if you think this is the path to luxury and comfort, think again. Foxes and birds have better houses than I have. In the parables of the sower, Jesus explained there were four types of people who listened to his discourses. There was the wayside here, the thorny ground here, the stony ground here, and a few fruitful good listeners. Which of these four types of hearers was Judas? How'd you classify him? Was he a wayside here, a stony ground here, a thorny ground here, a good soil listener? Well, we know Judas wasn't a good soil listener. We can eliminate that right off the bat. Was he a wayside hearer? Does this describe Judas? Matthew 13, 17 says, a wayside hearer is one who doesn't really try to understand. He goes through the motions of religion but never really meditates and thinks about it. The Bible goes in one ear and out the other. The wayside hearer doesn't find truth interesting or important. Does that describe Judas? No. Um, was Judas a thorny ground here? Look at Matthew 13, 22. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. Although it's closer to fitting Judas, this isn't Judas. He appeared to have left everything to follow Jesus. Is Judas a stony ground listener? Look at verses 20 and 21. And our front row uh, listeners already identified it. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and in and with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth, because of the word, by and by, he is offended. This is Judas. He was a stony ground here. And listen closely, friends. Ellen White says that the typical Adventist believer 
is a stony ground here. Notice this from Christ Object Lessons, page 46. Many who make a profession of religion are stony ground hearers. The heart has not been humbled or sensitive to guilt. This class may be easily convinced and appear to be bright converts, but they have only a superficial religion. Many receive the gospel as a way of escape from suffering rather than as a deliverance from sin. Why is it that you're a Christian? Why is it that you want Jesus? Is it because he eases the way of life and he does, dear folk? Or is it because he is the way of life? They rejoice for a season for they think that religion will free them from difficulty and trial. While life moves smoothly with them, they may appear to be consistent Christians, but they faint beneath the fiery test of temptation. They cannot bear reproach for Christ's sake. When the Word of God points out some cherished sin or requires self-denial or sacrifice, they are offended. Don't talk to me about my diet. Don't ask me to change my music. Don't ask me to sacrifice my sports, my boyfriend, my jewelry. That is offensive. That's not grace. Just talk about the grace of God. It continues, it would cost them too much effort to make a radical change in their life. They look at the present inconvenience and trial and forget the eternal realities. That was Judas. And that's the Judases today. That was Esau. Balaam was a Judas. Christ Object Lessons 48. There are very many who claim to serve God. Their desire to do His will is based upon their own inclination, not upon the deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. Suppose that there was a man that uh, um, loved drugs. And uh, so he wasn't interested in being a church member because it would re require that you could not use drugs. You know, I'm talking about uh, recreational drugs. I'm not talking about medicines that you need for your illnesses. I'm talking about illicit drugs. Um, is he a Christian? No, drugs is his God. He chose drugs over God, right? But there's another person you're looking at. And this person enjoys being around good people. Doesn't like drugs. Not inclined to do that. He's inclined to come to church and be with people and hear nice music and uh, maybe grew up in a, in a Christian home. Likes the association, likes the higher culture. Just likes that. Is he a Christian? No, both of them are simply doing what they like to do. A Christian does not what he likes to do. He likes to do what God wants him to do. He gets new likes. It's not inclination. Their conduct, I'm reading, is not brought into harmony with the law of God. Their characters reveal defects, both hereditary and cultivated. Christ's Object Lessons 48 continues, They make efforts for reform, but they do not crucify self. They do not give themselves entirely into the hands of Christ, seeking for divine power to do His will. 
in a general way, they acknowledge their imperfections. Um, they'll say, uh, have no difficulty in saying, uh, yes, I'm a sinner. But in a general way, they acknowledge their imperfections, but they do not give up their particular sins. With each wrong act, the old selfish nature is gaining strength. I had a patient that came into my office years ago. And she'd been one of my first patients in rehab. And I'd taken care of her shoulder, and she'd made some good improvements, and we'd become good friends, and she had been a patient of mine for years. And then she was moving to another place. And I felt I should talk to her about the Lord. We'd had many nice conversations and brief encounters. And um, I knew she trusted me. And so I asked her if, uh, if uh, she had one more piece of uh, medical advice, if I had one more piece of medical advice, if she'd be interested in that. Could help more than her shoulder. So she recognized there was something uh, else behind it, and she gave me permission to continue. And so um, I said, here's what you need to do. You need to look up wherever you move, and people who've just moved, they've uprooted, that's the time that they can get into a new church. I said, you need to look up your nearest Seventh-day Adventist church, and you need to uh, become active in, uh, and become a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, I've never told a patient before since that. But, um, and she says, well, that's interesting that you would say that. What do Seventh-day Adventists believe? And she said, uh, she says, do they, do they mean you can't wear hot pants? If I'd be a Seventh-day Adventist, could I not wear hot pants? And so I said, that's a very fascinating question that you would ask that. Why did you ask whether Seventh-day Adventists cannot wear hot pants? Well, she says, I grew up in a very conservative Pentecostal home, and they wouldn't let us wear hot pants. And, uh, and she said, I don't want to be a part of any church that doesn't let you wear hot pants. And so I said, well, I said, if you're going to follow Christ, you don't put any conditions on it. And I said, suppose that I said to Christ, I said, Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go, except I'm not going to go to Hawaii. <laughs> what is the one place that God is going to have to send me to? Hawaii. Yeah, it'd be a sacrifice, of course. But um, because what do I have to, to surrender? My way to God's way, if I'm in charge in anything, God isn't in charge of everything. So I said, I said, regardless of whether hot pants are right or wrong, if you say, I will not, I'll follow Jesus in every way, except I won't, except I'm going to wear hot pants, then what is God going to have to do? He's going to have to say, you can't wear hot pants. Has to. Because surrender means surrender. She became a Seventh-day Adventist, by the way. <laughs> um, it is a lesson we need to learn today. Total surrender is necessary for fruitful growth. Now, I don't really even know what hot pants are. I didn't know then. But 
uh, my point is not hot pants. Don't miss my point. My point is total surrender. If I say I will follow God in everything uh, except I won't eat veggie burgers, <laughs> put it that in, then I haven't surrendered at all, right? Now, God's not going to force you to make uh, to eat veggie burgers unless they're Cedar Lakes. Uh, there's been an undercurrent always among God's people to water down God's messages to make them more acceptable to the world. We must not deceive people that coming into the church will make them popular, rich, or successful. If you are serving Christ for any of these reasons, dear folk, you should leave today because you will leave before the end. Save yourself the weight. The Seventh-day Adventist church is not, stepping, is not the stepping stone for worldly greatness. There are people who are embarrassed that Seventh-day Adventists attempt to follow the Bible. They're ashamed at simplicity. They're ashamed of modest dress. They're ashamed that God's true followers follow the Bible standard and do not wear gold, pearls, or costly array. They believe this keeps us back from success, from acceptance by the world. The disciples thought that. They thought that Jesus should adopt more modern methods to get more success. But to help his disciples through the ages, Jesus left the story of Judas. He ordained Judas. He sent him out with the other disciples, gave him the power to heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. And for over two years, Jesus lived and worked full time with the God of the universe. Judas let the Holy Spirit do outward miracles, but he refused to let the Holy Spirit do the inward miracle of life change. Some people believe that it is the outward manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are needed in the church today. Some are even waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall so that they will make some uh, needed and necessary changes where they'll gain victories over cherished sins in the, their life. They believe that the Holy Spirit is the way to get to heaven without effort. But the story of Judas shows that this is a deception. My former nurse waited for the Holy Spirit to take away her smoking habit. She's still praying for that. It's been going on for many years. And she still doesn't believe that God is quite yet ready yet for her to quit smoking. If he was, he'd take away the desire. It seems to me that the Scripture plainly states that the Holy Spirit's work is to convince us of our sins. And then as we willingly yield our will in our way, the Spirit will make a difference in our lives. Saul, the first truly national king of Israel, received the Holy Spirit. He even had the gift of prophecy, but what did he do? He didn't submit to the molding of the Spirit, the inward work. And he ultimately died a lost man despite twice having received an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram received the Holy Spirit and prophesied with the 70 in the wilderness and they too stand as a warning. According to the late scholar, Dr. Leslie Harding, 
one of the seven deacons, Nicholas, became the founder of the Nicolaitans. The Holy Spirit's outward manifestations are not a substitute for the quiet inner work of the Holy Spirit. If we are not gaining victories in our lives today through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will have no victories when the Holy Spirit is poured out in the church. Judas was no different inwardly while healing the sick than before he was given the power. No different. After observing Judas, the disciples finally fully learned this lesson. You remember Simon Magus, that popular Samaritan preacher. When he applied for a place among the twelve, Peter didn't welcome him like he welcomed Judas. He rebuked him. Peter had learned the lesson of Judas. No wonder the inner working of the Holy Spirit giving us victory over every wrong thought and action must occur before the outward or outpouring of the Spirit. Otherwise, some cherished sin will overpower us and the gift of the Spirit, instead of advancing God's cause, would be used to exalt our, ourselves. Acts of the Apostle says, those only who are constantly receiving fresh supplies of grace will have the power proportionate to their daily needs and their ability to use that power. Isn't that interesting? Instead of looking forward to some future time when through a special endowment of spiritual power they will receive a miraculous fitting up for soul winning, they are yielding themselves daily to God that He may make them souls meet for His use. Daily they are improving the opportunities for service that lie within their reach. Daily they are witnessing for their master wherever they may be, whether in some humble sphere of labor or at home or in a public field of usefulness. Dear folk, if that's the story of our life, then we're Christians, and if it's not, we're not. It's that simple. It's not just the Mark Finleys who are working for the Lord. It is those who are raising children for the Lord who are working for him as well at home or in public. Notice this quotation from Desire of Ages 294. Judas had the same opportunities as had the other disciples. He listened to the same previous, uh, precious lessons. But the practice of the truth which Christ required was at variance with the desires and purposes of Judas. And he would not yield his ideas in order to receive wisdom from heaven. It's the practice of truth. And dear Dear people, if we're not practicing the truth, we're lost in the midst of truth. It is the practice of truth which may, which may be at variance with our desires and wishes. Jesus dealt so tenderly with Judas. I would have exposed him. He was dangerous. He was creating a danger and real problems for Jesus. I would have rebuked him sharply. But there's no record of sharp rebuke. Jesus received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He healed the people. He preached the gospel. Souls responded. These experiences should have softened him, humbled him. He should have seen how undeserved these blessings were. Jesus presented the values of heaven in the most attractive light. Yet in the presence of Jesus' life and in the presence of Jesus' teaching, Judas preferred money and material possessions to the eternal riches that Jesus was offering. It's amazing. 
John 6 points to a turning point in the history of Judas. Judas had joined Jesus because he thought Jesus was going to be a king. Judas wanted a high place in the kingdom. But John tells the story of Jesus refusing to be the monarch of a worldly kingdom. And he spoke plainly to the crowds that his kingdom was spiritual, not carnal. The crowds could appreciate the temporal blessings of Jesus. They loved the loaves. They could appreciate free bread. They could appreciate healing. But they couldn't appreciate and didn't desire the real blessings that Jesus came to bestow. They had no interest in eternal gifts. John 6 tells the story of the fickle multitude who followed Jesus for the same reason Judas did. They then forsook him. The stony ground here is left. It was at this point that Judas left in, a, in heart. Jesus discerned this change in Judas. It's going to happen to the church. It's called the shaking time. And the multitudes are going to leave. And Lord, help me to be daily learning the lessons of surrender to your will, not mine, that I not go out when the majority do. The stony ground here is left. It is the end of this chapter, Jesus warns his disciples, did I not choose the twelve, and one of you is a devil? John adds, so no one misses it, he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. It was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Judas loved the world, and he loved the things of the world. The love of the Father was not in him. The warning Jesus gave the disciples, we have been given. Page 88 of Volume 5. I warn the church to beware of those who preach to others from the word of life, but do not themselves cherish the spirit of humility and self-denial which it inculcates. Such men cannot be depended on in a crisis. In a crisis, what did Judas do? He left. And in the crisis, that's what every person who follows Jesus for the loaves and fishes will do. Why was Judas undependable? Because he was interested in protecting himself, not furthering the cause of truth. When danger appeared, he ran. He was a hireling, not a shepherd. When persecution arose, the stony ground here wilts. They may be rooted and grounded in doctrine, but that is superficial indeed. God is not calling us to be able to quote Scripture so that we can be intellectual um, giants. He calls us to be rooted and grounded in the principles of love that these verses were designed to place in our hearts. If we do not love Jesus supremely, if we do not love His truth and His cause more than ourselves, we cannot be depended upon in a time of crisis. We find that Judas had an interest in money. He became treasure for the disciples. Jesus didn't stop this. What would you think of an administrator who knowingly allowed a thief to be, pre to be treasure? Would you want to be a part of any organization with an administrator that foolish? Well, think about it for a second. Who was the administrator of the 12 that appointed Judas to be the treasure? Jesus. Don't be all flustered when sins appear at highest levels. Don't let that uh, uh, frustrate you. Are there dishonest people? Are there Judases in leadership among God's people today? There are certain to be, just as there, there have been throughout history, just as there were among the very disciples of Jesus. Dear folk, 
in the future there are going to be disclosures of Judas's among us. Just as Judas's, Judas was exposed to the disciples. The Lord is going to make the hypocrites in Zion fearful. To your surprise, you're going to find of heinous sins in high places. Does that mean you'd better leave the church? No, it means you'd better not be a Judas within the church. That's what it means. Might some people have said when Judas was exposed for the traitor he was, I don't think I want to be among a group like that. Not with a leader like Jesus who puts him in as a disciple. Probably were those who thought that. But Jesus put Judas in as a treasure, not because he was a thief, but to give him an opportunity to become an honest man. Judas stole from the gifts given to Jesus. Can you imagine things that were sacrificially given to Jesus, stolen by this man? Ministry of Healing 470. They pray for Christ-likeness of character. This is true Christians. For a fitness for the Lord's work, and they are placed in circumstances that seem to call forth all the evil of their nature. See, God is going to place us where circumstances call for our very weaknesses. Why? Because he wants to, us to continue to pray, see those things, and let God take them away. Faults are revealed, she continues, of which they did not even suspect the existence. At the turn of the century, money was collected for the work among the blacks in the South. But there were some Judases among the Battle Creek leaders. Instead of putting the money where it had been given, they put it in their pet projects in Battle Creek. Do you know what they were doing? Stealing. God allowed this to test and reveal their character. Years ago, Adventists raised a uh, money to put the first printing press in China, color printing press. This was the first color printing press in China. And we put it in there because... Uh, and, and people gave sacrificially for this because they wanted to have the message, the truth, available to the Chinese. But before it was able to print the very first leaflet, pamphlet, or book, communists broke in and they stole it. And what was given in sacrifice to advance God's cause was taken, stolen by the communists, and used to advance their cause. But dear folk, did the people who gave sacrificially, did they gain the blessing? Should they have done it? Yes. Yes. Never begrudge what doesn't meet all the expectations that you desire. There's one thing thieves cannot rob. There was one part of the gift that Judas couldn't take. They couldn't take away the blessing that the giver received. The one who gave to Jesus to help the poor receive from Jesus all the benefits of giving. Judas might have intercepted that gift, but it was still given to Jesus. If Jesus wants to use the funds I give to test somebody's honesty, that's up to him. I have the privilege of giving. Like the surgeon who opens up the tissue so you can see the disease within, Jesus was about to lay bare Judas' selfishness. Mary's gift of love which came from her heart, was in marked contrast to Judas, and it put into shame. It was an appeal to him. But instead of responding to this unselfish appeal, he rejected it. 
According to his custom, he sought to justify his selfishness by assigning a worthy motive for his greed. It was the first time evil had been, dis is this the first time that evil has been disguised as a worthy motive? No, every sinner tries to justify his sin and disguise it. Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. Turning to the disciples, Judas said, why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Would the poor have been benefited had it been given? No. Judas would have stolen it. Don't miss this. This is the most important point of this talk. Judas carried the money bag. We carry God's money bag. Every one of us is a treasure for Jesus. Every penny, every resource, everything that we possess is given to us as a steward, just like Judas was given what he had as a steward. And we can steal from God's resources that he has given to us for others just as certainly as Judas. Is that clear? Our possessions test us like they tested Judas. If we think we are being paid for our services and withhold our giving because we earned it, how are we different from Judas? Am I going to steal it by keeping it myself, by withholding it from God's treasury? Will I justify my thievery on pious grounds like Judas? Let Judas steal from Christ's treasury, but let not me be a treasure that steals. I remember a young man who was on his way to the St. Louis Cardinals, one of the major baseball leagues, and he was studying the Bible and discovered the truth about the Sabbath. He had to make a decision. He could waste his life among Seventh-day Adventists or he could become a baseball hero. This young man wasted his life for Jesus and became a minister, actually, in the Michigan Conference. Winning souls instead of winning runs. Did he waste his life? Oh no, anything else would have been a waste. Anything else would have been stealing from Jesus. We can give no person greater, a greater goal than to waste their life in service for Jesus, to pour out their life in service for Him. When people tell you your gifts of love to Jesus are a waste, be assured that Jesus appreciates your gifts. It was from the home in Bethany, filled with the fragrance of love offered for Mary, that Judas left and walked to Jerusalem and offered to betray Jesus. He made a decision that he thought would end in betterment for himself by being away from Jesus. And he ended up within a very few days. That man, that young man, was dead. Suicide. The decision of a Sabbath afternoon meal with Jesus, a rejection of Jesus. Oh, folk, I want to not make that decision. I want to have Jesus fully and completely. I want to be near, still near, not farther, still farther.
Don't you? Dear Father, that's what we want, to be near, still near, until the beauty of Jesus is fully seen and revealed in us. We know Jesus so little. I pray that you'll open our eyes to his matchless charms. We'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I pray that you'll bless each person who's attended today. Pray that your spirit will convict all of our hearts. We need a deep uh, and changing experience as we see all that's happening in the world. Certainly you're coming soon. The crisis is stealing on us. And many of us are unready. I pray that we may not try to be ready in our own strength. We can't do anything. But that we'll be ready in the strength of the Lord. We'll give Him our heart. Let Him take it. We'll let Him change us. In the weaknesses that we have are more than matched by the strength that He has. And we thank you for Jesus and for hearing and answering this prayer. In Christ's name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.